listening to As in Heaven, a podcast about Orlando, faith, and how we as Christians can be more effectively on mission in our city and beyond. Our aim is to highlight local leaders who are doing incredible things to see God's will be done in Orlando as it is in heaven. Today's guest is Lee Swanson, who serves as Vice President of Community Relations at Reform Theological Seminary here in Orlando. She's also a trained theologian, teacher, and speaker. And in this interview, Lee talks about why her course on teaching women to teach the Bible has exploded so quickly in Orlando and beyond. She unpacks a healthy way to think through biblical manhood and womanhood, and she shares her personal thoughts on the Billy Graham rule and how it applies to Christian women in the workplace. Lee is a fount of knowledge and a pure joy to be around, and we were delighted to have her on the podcast. Jim Davis and Justin Holcomb are your hosts. I'm Matt, the producer, and without further ado, please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Lee Swanson. All right. This is an exciting episode for me. We're joined by a longtime friend of mine, Lee Swanson. You and your husband, David, actually participated in my installation service here at Orlando Grace Church. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And of course, Justin's here, Dr. Holcomb. Yes. Glad to have you here. Good to be here, buddy. All right. So, Lee, you are a woman of many hats. You wear some very different hats. You are Vice President of Reformed Theological Seminary for Community Relations. So, Vice President of Community Relations, Reformed Theological Seminary. What does that mean? Well, that's a good question. So, that means that I primarily do development work. So, I am the... uh, Uh, the person who asks people for money. So I raise money. I also oversee communications and some other um, areas at the seminary, but uh, primarily I'm a development officer. But I also get to extend the ministry of the seminary into the community and uh, talk to people about what we do and why we do it. Does that make you my boss? Jim says you're my boss. I'm totally cool with that because I teach at RTS. And vice president sounds intense. Sounds more impressive. You you actually go up through our academic dean. I'm more on the administrative side, but you can can tell people that I'm your boss. I would would like that to be like bragging rights. I'm happiest when everyone's reporting to me. So So you don't mind if I say that? No, please. Go right ahead. All right. Now that we've established the chain of command here, um, another uh, special feather you have in your hat is that you kept me, you and one other person really kept me in seminary. When I was trying to do this, this, what seemed like an endless MDiv had, was pastoring full time, had four little kids. You really came alongside us and, and kept us, kept us going. All right. I want to talk a little bit about your, uh, two hats. Oh, um, so this, I mean, is it, you, you have this pastor's wife hat, you have this you know, vice president of a very large seminary hat. Um, is it hard to, to go back between those hats? Do you feel like people treat you differently uh, depending on, on what hat you're wearing? You know, I think the way that I have stayed, well, I was going to say stayed sane, but maybe I'm not completely sane, but um, have tried to stay sane is to not worry about um how people are treating me. It's just moving through life, recognizing that, um, that, that really it's just one big hat and that's me. And I happen to be a pastor's wife. I happen to be uh, the vice president at a seminary. Um, those are roles that I have for right now. One day David will retire. One day I won't be at RTS anymore. Um, but I, I think, 
think about how I have tried to move through life with um, a sense of wholeness and that wherever I go, I'm uh, right now anyway in this season, I am both a pastor's wife and uh, a vice president at a seminary. Wherever I go, I represent First Pres. And wherever I go, I represent RTS. But the truth is, wherever I go, I should be representing the Lord. And so I don't think of that really as a burden or a concern. I just try to um, think about it in terms of wholeness and who Christ would have me be. So I don't really think about taking hats on and off for particular settings, because wherever I go, I'm all those things, but don't really think about those things defining me in any way. Um, all right. So I, it, it makes sense to me now, knowing more about your story, how women teaching, teaching women to teach would be birthed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, a couple of years ago, we started a ministry out of RTS called Teaching Women to Teach. Um, I know for me, when I was a young pastor's wife, I went to a women's Bible study at our church outside of Chattanooga, and there was a older woman there who stood up in front of a group of 50 women, everything from young moms to retirees, and she taught the Bible verse by verse, expositionally. Uh, she had been uh, mentored by Kay Arthur and was a big precept fan, and so Betty taught the Bible without... Uh, without a bunch of other books. I mean, she just taught through a book of the Bible. And I can remember sitting in those Bible studies as a young mom thinking, oh, that's, that's how you, that is how you do it. Right. Um, but then I started seeing this phenomenon of women being afraid to stand up and teach the Bible in churches. And that was about the same time where, uh, it became very easy just to go to Lifeway and pick up a you know, what used to be mm -hmm. uh, the VHS tapes and mm -hmm. quickly turned into DVDs. And I feel like a whole generation of women lost the confidence to stand up and teach the Bible mm -hmm. because they had never seen other women stand up and teach the Bible. Instead, you were only watching celebrity women teach the Bible. Interesting. And so I had known that this was a problem, but I didn't really know what to do about it. Um, it it bothered me that at first pres, it seemed like so often our default was to put in a Beth Moore study. And there's times where that's appropriate. But I knew from my time sitting under Betty's teaching that something really special happens um, in teaching when there's actually a relationship involved. I mean, that's what discipleship is, right? Um, not somebody teaching you who you'll never live life with. Mm. I mean, I knew Betty as a person. I knew what her story was. I knew um, so much of her own life had been a challenge. She'd lost a child. So when Betty taught about certain things in scripture, it, it there was so much more color to it because I knew her personally. So mm. that was something that I just struggled with, that I was looking around our city and so many people were moving to just using you know, prepackaged curriculum. About the same time, this was around um, 2016, and I found it funny. I was working part-time for RTS, but we were going through a leadership transition. I was starting to work full-time, and I had done retreats for other churches, women's retreats for other churches, but I was getting asked 
so often to do women's retreats for all these churches in town. And I mean, I'm okay, but I'm not great. And I just thought it was funny that there's not more women in Orlando Hmm. who could be asked. There were a few, but, you know, a couple of them had moved away. And I thought I... The way to solve the problem of me getting asked over and over to do women's <laughs> retreats is to raise up a whole nother generation of yeah. women who can teach the Bible and who are comfortable standing up teaching through a passage of scripture. So at the same time, this is all happening. Our new president um, at the time at RTS Orlando was Scott Swain, and he looked at the new leadership team and he said, you know, we pay a lot of lip service to say, oh, we serve the community, we serve the community. Are we really serving the community? And if we're not, how can we serve the community? This was also about the same time, I think in November of 2016, um, an author um, named Kate Shelnut at Christianity Today uh, wrote an article. And the first line of the article was about, it said something like, the most influential woman, the most influential woman in your church may not be someone who has ever stepped foot in the sanctuary. Wow. And it was an article about Jen Hatmaker and the proliferation of celebrity female teachers and what that had done to women's ministries. And that so many times in women's ministries, you know, women were using Bible studies that didn't even align theologically with the position their church had on certain issues. So all these things were kind of coming together for me. And so when Scott asked the question, what can we be doing to serve the community? I said, please, I know exactly what we should be doing. Let me launch an initiative where we provide some type of continuing education for lay women to give them the tools they need to regain the confidence to stand up and teach the Bible and women's Bible studies. And it just exploded. Everyone I talked to hands down was on board. And so we launched in um, January of 18, a year-long class that kind of covered both exegesis and exposition. And we had 121 women from 20 different Central Florida churches participate in this first iteration of Teaching Women to Teach. And... And 121, that was the cap, right? Like you had to... Well, I had capped it it at 60, actually. (laughs) And, you know, the the first time that we met in January, I mean, it was just, it was, I just realized if all these women want this training, we need to find a bigger classroom. I need to figure out a way to provide this for everyone who Mm -hmm. wants it, especially because we had so many different churches represented. I was clear from the beginning that I didn't want this to be a Bible study, that I really wanted women to self-select or have their leadership at their church encourage them to come, and that this was going to be for women who were teaching or who aspired to teach the Bible in women's ministry. So this was not just an all-call women's Bible study. So we, like I said, we started in January of 2018, and we met once a month in the evenings from 7 to 9, and we did an 11-month um, walkthrough kind of, I mean, I, I kind of planned the scope and sequence and asked RTS faculty to come in based on what I felt like would be, you know, their sweet spot. One of the most unbelievable things that happened, though, in the Teaching Women to Teach uh, 
in these few years since it got launched. In a, a year after I started it, um, I have a friend named Nancy Guthrie. Uh, she has a podcast for uh, the Gospel Coalition called Help Me Teach the Bible. And because Nancy and I are friends and because we had, she's kind of walked this journey with me, um, she asked me if I would do a Help Me Teach the Bible and talk about teaching women to teach because she felt like this was a model that could be replicated in other cities. So we sat down together. I was staying with her up in Nashville. We recorded a podcast in her home and I kind of laid out the whole thing. I continue, that was aired last January. I continue every week to get emails from women who are hearing the podcast from all around the world, and they are wanting to start something like it in their cities. So Teaching Women to Teach started in Charlotte this past fall. Um, It's about to start in Phoenix, Arizona, with the faculty of Phoenix Seminary in conjunction with TGC Arizona. Um, I've talked to people at Westminster in California. I've talked to women in, when I say talked, I mean emailed back and forth, but it's getting ready to start in Singapore, Northern Ireland. There's places all over the world who, when they heard the idea on Nancy's podcast, they thought about, (laughs) well, they knew that it's a problem too, that women have lost the ability to stand up and teach in a women's Bible study. And everyone intuitively knows that, the best kind of teaching happens in relationship. So I can't tell you like how excited pastors, elders, I mean, everybody has been excited about the idea of equipping women. I think people know that there's a problem in women's ministry. Um, people, pastors especially, have known that, you know, women are using curriculum that is, you know, maybe not aligned with where their church is theologically, mm. but they haven't really known what to do about it. I mean, their plates are so full. So many of the leaders in this town have um, of churches have pulled me aside and thanked me yeah. because they knew there was a problem. They didn't have the time to tackle it. Um, and so we really, RTS has been able to provide a service uh, to the Christian community in Orlando doing what we do best, which is teaching people how to rightly handle the Word of God. You know, I want to know more about what it's like to be a female in leadership in a Christian world. Um, Maybe some things that that Dr. Swain does really well to set a culture that you like, or really, here's what it comes down to me. What advice do you have for me as a male with male and female on staff, setting a culture, leading an organization? I think that it's a great question. So I... I would say that one of the blessings of working at RTS and even, you know, that I just happen to be, uh, you know, a female on a leadership team of of men, I work with men who have a uh, a very robust theology of personhood mm. that they have spent time thinking through what does it mean to be brothers and sisters in Christ what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And they haven't reduced it, um, but it is, uh, you know, a robust anthropology. And I have the benefit of working in the midst of that kind of an environment, hmm. um, especially in conservative Christian circles. We've tend to so overemphasize distinction that 
you know, things got really have gotten really wonky when we talk about masculinity and femininity and distinction. And um, luckily, I work with these brilliant theologians who don't let that theology go wonky. You know, they see women as whole persons. Um, Again, something you shouldn't actually have to say, but I mean, you, you do have to say it because that's our reality. But I mean, you're saying have to. that they see people like that's actually a big marker is that they see women as whole persons. Well, yeah, yeah. Because some don't in the Christian tradition. I mean, that's not always been something assumed. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I think back to, um, you know, a few years ago, there was the, you know, John Eldridge wrote that book, Wild at Heart. Mm-hmm. And then his wife wrote a book, I think it was called Captivating. And when I talk about reducing our anthropology to stereotypes, that is the that's a great example to me was those two books. Mm. And I think some people probably found parts of them helpful, but you know, not all men want to run through a forest with a spear and kill things. And not all women are, you. you know, are lounging on their white linen sheets waiting for a man to come rescue them. Eating bonbons. You know, if we reduce what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman to those kind of over stereotypical kinds of thing, images, um, then we get into real problems and yeah, it creates uh, confusion. I think as we interact with each other, well, wow, you're so different from me. Mm-hmm. And the only way I know to relate to you is as, as someone who might come rescue me, uh, no thanks. You know, it's like, how do you engage each other as men and women on a team together if your only picture of men and women is, you know, John and Stacey Eldridge, wild at heart picture? Then it doesn't give us a platform for actually t- speaking to each other, right? So, um, so I have... Loved being able to, like I said, work with men who have a more robust anthropology than than Wild at Heart. So uh, there's not there's not an overemphasis on distinction, um, but there's not a flattening of distinction either. You know, I'm a girl. They're a guy. And one of the things that I always talk about is, you know, I have gifts and some of them might have a similar gifting. But I, I do it as a woman. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a spiritual mother. I'm not trying to be a spiritual father. Mm. And that's where mm. I think the, um, you know, the imagery that the Bible uses about the household of God is so helpful that the Bible gives me a picture of how I'm to relate with these men that I work with. And it's as brothers. And as, as spiritual siblings, we're called to promote each other's holiness we see each other as whole persons. Um, we we recognize distinction, but we don't overemphasize distinction, and we don't stereotype distinction. So, um, so it's been helpful. I mean, I, we've had a lot of conversations about this. There have been um, some things that we've read that have been helpful. I keep trying to encourage some of the men that I work with to please write about this because I don't think there's been much written at a popular level that can really um, – that could really benefit um, kind of the circles that we all run in. 
So uh, I think we've just found Justin's next book. Oh, no, that I w- would be <laughs> actually is Lee's next I think, book. I think Lee needs to do the Here's edited right. volume on this with all of the faculty. Like she assigns them topics. Oh, so that basically, would be, that's a great idea. I would totally read that. I would too. If you can do a book version of your collage ministry, oh but, yeah, to like this. That. Yeah, we just we need we need more thoughtful Christians writing and leading in these issues because for so long. Um, in evangelicalism, we've been given, you know, there's kind of two camps. Well, you're an egalitarian and you, uh, you know, you're all about equality and not about distinction or you're complementarian and you're all about distinction and you minimize the e- equality part. And I think that just has become almost an unhelpful paradigm. And mm. there are people who are beginning to write about a third way. And I, um, I mentioned to you, I think before we started recording a, a Catholic philosopher named Prudence Allen, sister Prudence Allen, who writes about, uh, she, she calls it integral complementarity as In, a integral uh-huh, complementarity, okay. as opposed to fractional complementarity. And if you can imagine, um, in, this is the way she describes it. In fractional complementarity, men and women are incomplete without the other. Men need mm. a woman to rescue. Uh-huh. Women need a man to be the helper of, right? To be rescued by. Yeah. And so kind of in the, the math of fractional complementarity is one half plus one half. Like you're half a person, I'm half. One half plus one half equals one. Mm-hmm. But in integral complementarity... You have two whole persons, right? And one plus one equals three because something magical happens when hmm. two whole persons approach something. And I think that's what, you know, Carolyn James calls it the blessed alliance. You know, different people have yeah. written kind of about it. Um, you know, what happens when men and women as brothers and sisters come alongside each other and women minister as women, men minister as men, but they minister side by side, something happens that's greater than the parts, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. so I'm tracking them. Yeah. And <laughs> it makes so much wow. sense to me because I, I think about, um, a lot of the, the the gender debates going on right now and what is marriage and oft I mean in the 20th century it really could have been the church by saying you're really not complete unless you're married you know or family is the ultimate value well if that's the ultimate value and I'm not complete unless I have this then then I sh- I have the right and I should have this and so we miss out on on even what it means to be a whole person, even in, in a whole functioning person in the maybe in the line of Augustine and Paul and Stott and C.S. Lewis, who did not marry and had thriving ministries and contributions to the kingdom. And the pastoral implications for single, divorced, widowed, yes. also playing into this, that they, they lost their other half. They're not full. I mean, there are real practical ways that this comes off where you actually have to tell single people in the church that their life matters, even though they're not married. And if they're married, then they have to procreate. I mean, there's 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 a whole script yes. that that the American Christian subculture gives. And this the fractional. I mean, that that's what it was when you were describing it. At first, I thought it was fractal, like frozen fractals <laughs> thing. And do you, I know that, I did okay. a report in fifth grade on fractals. Really, yeah. I didn't know what fractals were until my girls watched Frozen, and now I'm hooked on them. They're amazing. <laughs> but fractional 
and you described it wonderfully. So we're going to have to get some either a summary of that for show notes and get some links because um, so Prince Allen, I mean, it's tough wading through her stuff. She's written a kind of a a big three volume uh, series called the concept of woman. And it's, it's tough sledding, but there's just, uh, there's one little section in the third volume where she speaks to some of these issues and, you know, I'm still mulling it around, you know, a more, uh, easy to read author who is starting to do some work on this is Amy Bird. I don't know if y'all have read any of Amy's stuff, but Amy wrote, uh, uh, she wrote, uh, no Little Women, which addresses a lot of the issues about women teaching in the local church. And then most recently, she wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Friends that kind of develops this idea of women as whole persons, men as whole persons relating to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. She does a little jag on some of the Billy Graham rule stuff. So it's funny you say that. That's bouncing around in my head. Some people are now calling it the Mike Pence rule. Right, so right. So where where and. My understanding is that a man and a woman would never be alone together to protect from any possible um, <laughs> improprieties happening um, or just for, to protect, you know, the, to be a, above reproach. Um, how, you mentioned that. How does what are your thoughts on that and how does that play out in your world? Well, I think when people talk about the Billy Graham rule, we've got to remember that people's intentions are usually good. They're. You know, your impulse to safeguard your marriage is something that, of course, we want to promote the intention. But I think we have maybe forgotten that rules don't necessarily equal purity. Mm-hmm. I've known people in active addiction who are showing up at AA meetings. And so, you know, an external behavior doesn't necessarily equal an internal reality. We know that as believers, right? And so when I think about the Billy Graham rule, I like to encourage people to kind of reframe um, how they talk about wanting to protect their marriage and maybe think about guidelines instead of rules. Uh, We should all be wise in how we conduct ourselves. Mm. And yet, what wisdom asks of us is to consider a particular circumstance. I mean, it's easy just to have a set of a list of rules and I'm always going to follow this list of rules. Well, that's legalism. And Jesus didn't follow the Billy Graham rule. (laughs) And I've watched very well-intentioned men at, at students at RTS act in a very unkind manner towards a woman woman because they were insisting on following an extra biblical rule um, that really you could almost argue in some ways is non-biblical because if someone's in need, we should help the person Mm -hmm. in need. And um, I'll give you an example of a woman who was on campus late at night. Her car was broken down. She asked a male student for a ride home. They both lived in the same uh, apartment complex, and he was very hesitant. There was an awkward conversation that ensued because he had made a commitment to his wife that he would never be in the car alone with another woman. And so... 
he, I think, felt put on the spot and insisted that she ride in the backseat. And that, I mean, that's that. Yeah. I mean, as a woman, like I I would have said to the guy, you're not that great. Like I can assure you, you are safe on this two mile drive (laughs) from RTS to the apartment (laughs) complex. Um, But when we talk about the application of the Billy Graham rule so many times, it's the women who get painted negatively that women are to be someone who we fear like the whole temptress kind of thing that it's men's reputations that we're trying to protect, not women's. Mm. So I just think that there's uh, other ways to think about it that are smarter than a blind insistence on, I'm never going to be alone with the, with a woman. I mean, if you have a daughter who has car trouble and a, a pastor comes by, I mean, don't you want someone to take care of your daughter? Do you want the pastor daughter? to stop or somebody right. who has none of our values? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I just think we need to rethink the application of it, especially in this day and age for us to think that sexual temptation is just heterosexual temptation. Hmm. I mean, if you as a pastor say, well, I'm not ever going to meet alone with a woman these days. Well, does that mean you're never going to meet alone with a man too? I mean, cause we, there's all kinds yeah. of sexual temptation out there. And so I just think we need to think through how we talk about it so that we're not demeaning women um, unintentionally when we talk about it. Again, I think everybody should, you know, move through uh, work relationships and relationships with wisdom. Um, but I just think it would be more helpful if we talked about it in a different way rather than a set of rules, because I think rules can give us a false sense of security. So what would be either in, say, Scott Swain's life or your husband's life, what would be guidelines then? If we're moving from rules over to guidelines, what kind of guidelines would would you suggest? Well, I mean, it's funny because even when you ask the question, you're it, it so often comes from a man's perspective, like men mm. get to dictate the rules because it's men who are in danger, mm. not women. And so... Uh, well, then in your own life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in your life. How have you instituted as a vice president of a very large <laughs> seminary? How have what kind of guidelines do you put into your life? Well, so that is a really good distinction. Mm-hmm. I appreciate being very lovingly called out right there. <laughs> did I call yeah. you out? On that? You did. You did. And well, I appreciate it. Well, and I, I mean, I am sensitive to the fact that people need to be wise. I mean, I've got a husband who's a pastor of a large church and he he is careful Right. Like he is not going to go regularly grab drinks with a woman after work. It's just not what you do. But if he's in a situation where um, he needs to get coffee with a woman, you might see him at the Starbucks at the Boheme with, you know, he does a lot of work on homelessness in our community. Mm. You might see him with a city official at Starbucks and and that's okay. And that's okay. You you're, you have a meeting and it's in public. And yeah, it's just, yeah. I again, I think that it's uh, more about, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that are going to lead to a, an affair. A million factors lead to an affair. Not a cup of coffee at Starbucks over, you know, a issue on homelessness. homelessness yeah. So, um, 
you know, I have access to David's calendar. He has access to my calendar. We talk all the time about what our days are looking like, who we're meeting with, what's going on. Um, I don't think I could really do my job if every person on our campus held to a strict interpretation of the Billy Graham rule, then that would mean I couldn't walk into my boss's office and shut the door. So Mm. um, I just think, again, we can go back to the idea of whole persons and seeing each other as brothers and sisters. When you see, I mean, what I want for my siblings is to promote their holiness and godliness. And I'm not a threat to them. Again, that doesn't mean that we're going to throw caution to the wind and, you know, sure. do things that um, that that might look inappropriate to other people or we and we do need to be above reproach. But I just think, again, that there's other ways to talk about it and we need to think about context rather than just abiding by some set of arbitrary rules. I can't tell you how much I appreciate how well you've thought this through. I mean, you've thought it through well. You communicate it very clearly, very graciously, um, very effectively. It it makes me want to have like a whole nother podcast on this. (laughs) Well, I I do. I I would like that, Um, you know, because the truth is, you know, you're not Billy Graham. And most men who have a staunch application of the Billy Graham rule in their own life. I mean, we forget that Billy Graham was living in a context that probably required these rules and the Billy Graham rule in, in his, in that context, wasn't just about meeting alone with women. It was also about financial integrity. Hmm. I mean, I would like to see pastors talk about financial integrity and the Billy Graham rule, Hmm. because that was part of this whole set of rules that his team kind of developed and committed to live by. And, you know, he was on the road, you know, 48 weeks a year or something. So, and you didn't have as many women in the workplace and women leading. So it was probably a little easier back then, maybe. Yeah. 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 It was just, it was just totally different. All right. As we finish, I have two more things I want to ask you. Uh, First, we live in Orlando. This is an Orlando centric podcast. Um, You've lived in multiple cities. You have done ministry in various contexts. You have the 1,000-foot view of First Pres. You have the 30,000-foot view of RTS. When you look at Orlando, what makes it unique in terms of ministry here? Oh, easy. We have got some of the largest parachurch organizations in the world right here in Orlando. So, of course, of course, RTS is here, which is a tremendous resource. But I was just down at Wycliffe last week having lunch um, with Dr. John Chestnut, the new president of Wycliffe and his wife and some others. It wasn't just the two of us. <laughs> um, there were several of us there for the lunch. Uh, but but I that mean, would have been OK. But it still would have been OK. We were, yes, in public. So it was it was it's just amazing to be in a city where you as Christians, we are so um, overly resourced. We've got Ligonier here, crew, pioneers, third mill, third mill. I mean, there's, there is opportunity for so much partnership. Hmm. It's, it's really phenomenal. Um, and you know, a lot of these people from, um, these different organizations come to RTS. will you know, either audit classes when they're on furlough hmm. or, you know, somehow our paths will cross. And I think what a, tremendous blessing it is 
to get to hear about what the Lord is doing really all around the world. So I think if you're a Christian in Orlando, all you have to do is, you know, look to your right or look to your left and you can get some uh, perspective firsthand from people who have served in contexts very different from ours. So really world Christianity is right here in Orlando. What would be some of the challenges then of, well, we know that the backside of every strength is a challenge. When you look either from First Pres or from RTS point of view, what are challenges to doing ministry in Orlando? Uh, well, I mean, because all these agencies are here, I think, uh, you know, I think finances can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you've got a lot of people in this town who are, you know, raising money for very good causes. And so something that I have had to learn as a development officer is not to think in terms of scarcity of resources, but mm-hmm. abundance of resources. Okay. There are enough resources to accomplish what God's calling us all to accomplish. Yes. So these are these are not rival ministries. Mm-hmm. These are partners in ministry. And we want to do, I know at RTS, we want to do whatever we can to serve uh, the other ministries that are in town. And I know that's how they posture themselves as well. All right. Last question. Uh, what advice, if you could go back in time to your 28-year-old self, just, just a couple years ago, yeah, 28-year-old self, and give her one piece of advice, one piece of advice, what would that be? I think at 28, I was just starting to have kids. I was a new pastor's wife, and people kept telling me that it was going to be really hard to raise kids who were going to love the church when their dad was a pastor. And I think because of that, I probably did a little less discipleship at home because I didn't want my kids to feel like um, Mm. they had been beaten over the head. You know, they were pastor's kids. And then at home, mom was constantly reading the Westminster Confession to us. And, you know, I I wanted them to love God. I I didn't want them to feel that burden that some pastor's kids talk about, the that they had to be somebody that they uh, that they didn't feel like they were. And so I think I probably erred on the side of less in-home discipleship Hmm. than more. And now looking back on that, I think, oh man, I wish I had really catechized my kids. Hmm. I wish I had done scripture memory more faithfully with Hmm. my kids. Um, I think that's a disservice I did to them. So that's probably what I would tell my 28-year-old self is get in there and do scripture memory. Hmm. Get in there and memorize the catechism with them. I really appreciate that. Lee Swanson, this has been such a blessing. I've loved having you on here. We've we've all been looking forward to having you here. We've covered a lot of ground. There's more ground maybe in the future that we'll get to cover. But thank you very much for your time. And uh, we're all praying for everything that you're doing, including uh, teaching women to teach. Thank you. It's been a blessing to be here. Thanks so much for listening to As in Heaven. For more information on the mission of this podcast, including supplementary blog posts about the history and culture of Orlando, go to asinheaven.com. That's A S 
www.inhvn.com. If you like this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which helps a ton. You can do that right from the Apple Podcasts app if you happen to be listening there. As in Heaven is recorded in-house at Orlando Grace Church. For more information on Orlando Grace Church, go to orlandograce.org. Thanks again for listening.